0: Revelation, as most folks know, even if you're not in the church, is a book about the end of the world. The Greek name for Revelation is Apocalypsis. That's where we get the word apocalypse from. And that's what we've been learning about here in the book of Revelation. And we've been running through lately a... a, It's not a defined structure, but what is it talking about in order? And we're going to run through that again this morning to remind you and to bring anybody up to speed who hasn't been here lately. Uh, Number one, we believe in what's called the rapture of the church, which Revelation only references obliquely, I believe, that God will catch up which is what the word rapture means to catch away or snatch even his people prior to the beginning of the events described in Revelation. So we are looking for the imminent any moment, maybe even before I finish this Bible study, rapture of the church. Number two, the first major thing Revelation describes is the rise of Babylon. That there will be a worldwide empire that will conquer the globe. That's going to happen according to the word. Number three, the ravage of God's people, that this will be accompanied by great persecution of the Jews, first and foremost, but also of those that come to faith in Christ during this time. Number four, the ruin of the planet. We saw that there are all these plagues that God is going to send on the world. However you want to understand them, earthquakes, stars falling from heaven, the water will be poisoned, the sky will be blotted out, the trees will be burned up. It's not going to be a good time to be alive. Number five, the revenge of the devil. The Bible says Jesus will allow the abyss to be unlocked where he has penned up the worst of the worst demons to torment and then to destroy those who live on the earth. Number six is the refuge of the faithful. This is the continuing theme throughout the book that God will provide a refuge and preserve a remnant for those who believe in him. This is not to say that Everybody we protected who believes in Jesus at this time. It means God will preserve a little bit left through the end, no matter what. We talked about God preserving a place in the wilderness for Israel to be saved. And number seven, what we've been talking about last few weeks, is the reign of the Antichrist. That Babylon rises as a nation, we described how Daniel and several other places say it will be a ten-nation coalition that comes together. But halfway through this seven-year period that Revelation describes, three of those kingdoms will be pushed to the side to make way for one figure that is symbolically called the beast that John calls the Antichrist, who is the tyrant who will take command of Babylon and therefore the whole world. And not only that, but he will take his stand in the temple of God and declare himself to be God. So there will be a God emperor who rules on the world and rules it tyrannically, of course. We're going to continue within this subject today to look at The way that the Antichrist will control the world and how he will coerce people to obey and to worship him. Now, these verses in Revelation are some of the most popular, especially if you're going to start Googling stuff. It can be very difficult now to discuss the end times without either sounding like or veering into conspiracy theory. Because when you read some of the things that Revelation describes and you take it literally as we do, and then you look at some of the things that are happening in the world around you or some of the people that are shouting about things that are allegedly happening around us, they start to overlap. And this embarrasses many Christians because they're like, I don't want to be associated with that wackadoodle over there." I don't want the study of Scripture to be associated with fringe, weird ideas. I'm not with these people, but we start talking about this, and here they come showing up and saying, yes, and that's why the president is really a lizard. (laughs) But here's what I have to say. As a teacher, part of me would rather just give you the gist and kind of move on. You know, there's two kinds of prophecy teachers. The ones that are kind of do that, like, let's just get the gist, get the sense and just go on. We'll get the most important things. Lots of application. Great. Then you've got another group of guys that don't want to talk about application, don't want to talk about big picture or theory. They just want to pull out articles from the Internet, connect them to half a verse of scripture and then preach the articles rather than preaching the word. So, what is one to do? Well, the simple answer is to preach it the way that it was written. Because the Lord gave us these prophecies for a reason. And one of the reasons is so that when things like this begin to unfold, you can recognize them and say, Watch out for that. Stay away from that. Even if we are right now living in the last push towards the end... What John told us in his epistle is that there have been many antichrists, and one day there will be the antichrist. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's a theological term called typology, which means that things can happen that are similar to how they will happen ultimately at the end. King David was a type of King Jesus. He was like him, but Jesus was the greater one. Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of the Antichrist. He was not him, but he was a lot like him. And what Revelation tells us is you will be living in times that will be like this, even if you are not living in this. Does that make sense? Therefore, your response to the things you see must be considered according to the word. To that purpose, as we look at these things today and as we get into some of the things that some of y'all have been saying, when is he going to talk about such and such? Well, today's the day. And some of y'all are like, I'm so glad he hasn't mentioned such and such yet. Well, today's the day. But as we get into this stuff, I want to remind us at the beginning, and we'll come back to it at the end, that this struggle that we discuss is not a battle of bullets. It's not a battle of words or ideas, not a battle of votes or any such thing. It is a battle according to the Spirit. And the minute we lose sight of that is when we step off of the place where we are strong and, in fact, invincible and move into the place where we are weak and the enemy is strongest. So let's look at this. This There's some theology today, good application today, and uh, hopefully some interesting prophetic study for you as well. Verse 11 and 12. Then John says, John the evangelist, seeing this, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Last one is out of the sea. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. We've been introduced to three evil characters in the last two chapters. The dragon, who is Satan. The beast out of the sea, who is the Antichrist. And now this beast out of the earth, We have here a mockery of the Holy Trinity that you have God the Father who sends the Son and the Spirit who testifies of the Son. Now you have the dragon who raises up the Antichrist and the false prophet who gives glory to that Antichrist. This is what we have here. This beast out of the earth is symbolic of a figure that is known as the false prophet with a capital F and a capital P. We did not make up that name. Revelation 19 verse 20 specifically identifies him as that, as do chapter 16 and chapter 20. He is a false, lying, deceiving prophet who will serve the Antichrist, who will serve that dictator that will take command of Babylon and declare himself to be God. He has a false prophet to assist him. Let's look at this symbol here. He has two horns. Horns represent authority, typically, in in the Bible. He has two, so authority, but inferior to that of the beast, like a lamb. Now, in the book of Revelation, the lamb is who? Jesus. 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 So, He's a beast like a lamb, not a lamb who's been slain, but a ram, like a powerful lamb, what kind of like the, what the world thinks Jesus ought to be. He's a mockery of Jesus Christ, but his voice is like a dragon, meaning looks an awful lot like a Christ-like figure, like Jesus, but he talks like the devil. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 17, that sheep or that Uh, We're being sent out as sheep among wolves, that wolves will come in in sheep's clothing, not sparing the flock. How do we know? Well, you can tell by what comes out of their mouth. It might look really good, but what are they saying? Are they talking like a dragon or are they talking like our Lord? Well, this false prophet, it says, will cause the world to worship the first beast. I've discussed this already. Although Revelation doesn't use the term, Jesus does Paul does, Daniel does, something called the abomination of desolation. This is the moment when the Antichrist will, according to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, stand in the holy place of the temple and declare himself to be God. He will command worship and here arises this second beast to enforce it. The false prophet. There is a prophet to this false God, this false Christ It says the world will give glory to the beast and to the dragon. And this is the false prophet's job to make that happen. We'll discuss how he'll do this in a moment. But there are some context clues here because there are a lot of opinions about what kind of figure this might be. And I don't know that I hold to any one of them specifically. uh, But it is interesting to discuss. So let's look at this. There's four options that I'm going to discuss today. The first is that the false prophet is a secular false prophet. What do I mean by that? This means that the false prophet's symbolism is not really giving us any clues about what he is. Perfectly legitimate understanding of this passage. That in all likelihood, he's some kind of converted humanist, or perhaps he was not affiliated strongly with any other religion prior to this. He's just a man that is not really given any kind of other detail. He'll rise up with no real religious affiliation until the beast arises. This is uh, the the Tim LaHaye view of of looking at this, that he didn't really belong to any group. If you read the Left Behind books, uh, which are not his theology, but it's a popularization of his theology, uh, that's that's one way of looking at it. And I, I think that that's a good base point to start. That he's going to be a wicked guy, and it's really not entirely essential where he comes from. But let's look at these other options. Number two is that this is a Jewish false prophet. Why is that? Well, because we know, first of all, that a strong deception has already been sent to the children of Israel. That they are not going to worship Jesus, their Messiah, until the end. But the strong point from this passage is that it says he arises out of the earth. The first beast rose out of the sea, which we talked about as a symbol of the world apart from God. It's also where the abyss dwells. Uh, But this says, out of the earth. You can, in certain contexts, translate that word, geis, taste geis, which means the earth, as the land, meaning referring to the promised land. So in the Old Testament, they'll say the land, they'll talk about. The, uh, the promised land, Canaan, Israel. The Greek is Haaretz, but if you translate it to Greek, it's geis, which is the land in Greek. And so some people believe that this is a beast rising up out of the promised land, meaning it's a Jewish false prophet. I think that's really kind of stretching that he comes out of the earth personally. I also think it ignores the persecution that is going to be leveled by the Antichrist against the Jews. And some people would say, well, that's what makes the false prophet so bad. Perhaps. Here's another view, and boy, is this one interesting, although it has a very significant weakness that I will identify for you. Some see this as an Islamic false prophet, and this is tied to a certain view of who the Antichrist is and who Babylon is, which we will discuss in detail in chapter 17. Islam is waiting for a figure called the Mahdi. They're waiting for their Messiah who will come and usher in the worldwide caliphate. It's what ISIS was trying to do. That's why they had black flags with the confession of Islam on it. They were trying to usher in a world where the Mahdi could come back. All right. Certain sects of Islam believe that when Mahdi returns, he will be accompanied by Jesus Christ descending from heaven. They call him Isa, is the Arabic name for Jesus, but they say, Isa al Masay will return. And what will Jesus do? He will point the whole world to the Mahdi and say, follow him, follow the Mahdi, not me. I'm Jesus, but don't listen to me, follow him. And they say that the Mahdi himself won't, won't kill anybody, but Isa will be the one to strike down anybody that won't follow after the Mahdi. So many people see the fact that the false prophet is like a lamb. And if that were to be the case, the symbolism would certainly match. In fact, those same sects of Islam see Revelation 6, verse 2, the rider on a white horse with a bow, as a picture of the Mahdi. They say the Christians have got it all wrong. He's not the Antichrist. That's the guy we're waiting for. Which just sends a chill down your spine, doesn't it? Uh, Very, very possible, even if it's not an Islamic Antichrist, if a figure like that who matches the Islamic... uh, Islamic eschatology were to arise, they would go after him. It's a big problem that uh, a lot of the typical dispensational theologians have to answer. Where exactly does Islam fit into your eschatology? Because it's sort of all over the place. Now, I don't think they have to account for that, but a a belief that can uh, has a strength. Here's the great weakness. You are relying for your biblical interpretation upon the hadith and the Quran. You see that? Now, you can theologically say, well, this is the lie that Satan is preparing for these people. That's at least true. And it could be that Satan is preparing them for that. But I, that, that's the, the great weakness of that one. is you start exegeting, you know, what Muhammad said rather than what John said and Jesus said. So anyway, but I don't think that makes it wrong. And here's the fourth one. This was a very popular one for much of church history. This is a Christian false prophet. They see the same comparison like a lamb, like Jesus, and believe that this would be a Christian figure. Very often, the Pope, various Popes have been called the false prophet. Many people see, well, down the line, if you're going to have this guy, what if the Pope were to go along with it? Or what if uh, another popular pastor or Christian figure who will complete the prophesied apostasy of the church that 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 talks about? Uh, It could be... But uh, again, all you have to go on for that is the fact that he's like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. So do you see how all of these are interesting, but uh, it's difficult to pick one? I just think you should be aware of anybody, wherever they come from, that is going to stand up telling you to follow anybody other than Jesus Christ himself. This is a powerful, charismatic figure. Another beast. This is, I, I, I keep coming back to this because I know this is something a lot of folks are familiar with. But if I had... Well, one of my quibbles with the left behind novels, not Tim LaHaye's theology, which I think is very good. But the novels is you had the false prophet sometimes almost as a comic relief character. Like this bumbling idiot that was, you know, the the Christians were constantly getting one over on. It's not going to be like that. He's going to be the worst guy on earth except for the Antichrist. He will lead Satan's terrible deception. Jesus gave us warning about people like this in Matthew 24 which, of course, you've seen, we're in Matthew 24 a lot in Revelation because they're prophesying about the same things. Jesus said, therefore, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And he goes on to say, the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like lightning. He's like, there's not going to be this... Terrible ramp up to Jesus. He said, when I come, everybody's going to know. There's going to be no mistaking when the Son of Man comes to the earth. So don't fall for it. There have always been and will always be false prophets. We judge teachers by their doctrine and their fruit not by their ministry's effectiveness, not by the miracles that they do or their charisma or any such thing. Whether their name is Muhammad or Joseph Smith or some strange televangelist that is fleecing the sheep for money, we're not looking to those people. We're looking at their fruit of their life. If they talk like a dragon, it doesn't matter if they look like a lamb. Amen? All right, verse 13 through 15. So we know who he is. Let's look at some details now. Here we get a look at the false prophet's power and his methods that he will use in order to coerce worship. He performs counterfeit miracles. And by that, I do not mean that this is sleight of hand. I mean they're counterfeit because his miracle is only legitimate if it points to Christ. He will be calling down fire from heaven, among other things, which remember, I believe at this time, some believe prior to this time, but I believe along the same time, you've got the two witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, you might say, how could anybody doubt somebody who calls down fire from heaven? The same way people in Exodus could doubt Moses turning the water to blood because the priests of Pharaoh also turned water to blood and also made their staffs turn into snakes. Although, of course, Aaron's devoured theirs. It's a greater power. But he's going to be performing counterfeit miracles, false signs to deceive the world, as Jesus said in that verse we just read. And this powerful display will win over the world. This is not going to be a big grudging, people marching in chains sort of tyranny. They're going to go right along with it. Special attention will be paid to the fact that the beast was wounded by the sword and yet recovered. We talked about this last time, remember? Uh, I said that the best way of understanding this is that this is an empire that has been revived. However, there are those, and I have a hard time strongly disagreeing with them, who say that the Antichrist himself, the beast personally, will be wounded, harmed in some way, and then will return from that wound in a way that the world will marvel at. Some people even believe there will be some kind of false resurrection here. Uh, Or perhaps this will be the false prophet's first miracle. In any case, whatever it means, it's going to attract the whole world. He also will commission the construction of an image, undoubtedly, to be set up in the temple. Meaning, in God's holy place, we're not going to put the Ark of the Covenant, which is to represent the presence of God. We're going to put an image of the beast here. Makes me wonder what that thing will look like if they might even make it look like this picture that John has here in the book. But then it says the false prophet gives breath to the image. You know in your Bible when something has breath, it describes life. It describes power or even spirit. So what is going to happen It has life now. It has a voice now that it has power to speak. And it has power to command the death of those that won't worship. So you have to get this picture in your mind of an idol that the whole world is compelled to bow down and worship. And when someone refuses, the idol itself will speak and command that person to be put to death. Such tricks were used in Roman times. Simon Magus, remember Simon from the book of Acts? Simon the magician that wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church history tells us he was the church's first false prophet. That he went around claiming the power of Jesus, but mixing it with his magic. And that one of his tricks he used to do was to cause idols to speak when he would go into these temples. Now, there was all sorts of strange things they would do to try to make it kind of Wizard of Oz, the whole thing, and make it seem like it was speaking. But this is not appearance only. This seems to be demonic. Now, there are some... Who believe this? And I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put out some things today. I, I wanna encourage you not to scoff or laugh when I put them out there, even if you don't agree with it. I'm not gonna personally agree with all these things either, but they're things that people I trust and respect are putting out there so we can trust and respect. There are some who have said, all right, an image, let's look at this in the modern day. Are people gonna bow down and worship idols? Well, they do, but some people say, well, probably not. And what does it mean to give life to something? There are some that speculate that this might have be something like an artificial intelligence that is put within this image of the beast. And some people speculate that this is a digital thing, that there's a worldwide image presence of this beast that is compelling and conducting worship all over the world. I, I'm not sure if I'm down with that, but there are some folks that are talking about it, so I thought I would mention it to you. This seems to be more infernal than technological. This is demonic. This is not the technology that is, has caught up. But, you know, who knows? Stranger things have been posited, I guess. Here's what 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us. So we have the false prophet compelling worship. How? Through signs and wonders, especially calling down fire from heaven, making an image of the beast for all to worship, and giving life or breath to this image to speak. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, The coming of the lawless one, Paul's term for the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. You reject the truth. God will send you a lie. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This will be a supernatural time to be alive. And not to say that it's not supernatural now, but it will increase, more so, demonic activity. At this point it will be worship the beast or be killed. And many, almost all, will be deceived. And go after this and say, well, we've been waiting for proof and there's your proof. And all those who resist will die. Babylon is not merely a political entity, but it is a religious one. Desiring to bind the whole world under the name of the beast and the dragon who gives power to the beast. The Antichrist and the devil. And the false prophet is the chief propagandist sent out into the world to see to it that that does in fact happen. Verse 16 To the end, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Here is one of the most famous and yet mysterious passages in the book of Revelation. There are parts of this that we simply will not understand until it takes place. And I describe here the mark of the beast. The authority of Babylon, this empire, especially under the Antichrist, it will extend into every individual's personal life for control and wicked coercion. Not just coercion to not resist politically, but to bow down and worship this false god. All will be required to take the mark, the karagma in Greek. It means stamp or engraving, like you would engrave on a coin or craft an idol to mark it and make it in that way. On your hand or on your head. It is a mockery. Can you see how all of what the devil is doing is a dark mockery of what God has done? False God, false Christ, false prophet, false trinity, false mark. We saw back in chapter 7, verse 3, that the Lord had sealed on their heads the 144,000. Well, here comes Satan with his mark, his seal, the number of the beast. Verse 18 is fascinating. Verse 18 gives us God's surefire way to identify the Antichrist, as if, like, the abomination of desolation wasn't enough. But remember, there's a strong deception that's going to come upon the world. He says, wisdom and understanding are needed to calculate the number of the beast. The number of the beast. And boy, is that thing everywhere. If somebody wants to be edgy, they're going to put a 666 on something. Iron Maiden wrote a song about it. You hear about it all the time. If somebody wants to scare you politically, they'll start talking about the mark of the beast. But what is it? the number of the beast. This is probably referring to what is called gematria. This is an ancient way of decoding things where you would assign letters, numbers, and then calculate the numbers together and get a number. And this was not like an occult thing. This was just kind of common, it's what they did. Because in many languages, including Greek and Hebrew, you, you had letters used as your numbers. You know, we talk about Roman numerals, but even you look at Roman numerals, they're letters, right? Well, Greek more so. Greek, you would, you would have the letter alpha, alpha, beta, gamma would be number one, two, three. When you hit nine, you would go 10, 20, 30, 40, and so on. And every, num- every letter was assigned a number. This is how they would do calculations. Now, what you could then do is take somebody's name, add up the letters, what the numbers would represent, in their name, and you would get the number of that person. That's probably what this is referring to. The name Jesus, by the way, gives you 888. And many early church fathers saw that as a very significant thing, especially in light of this passage. The number of the Antichrist's name will be 666. Which is, you know... The Bible uses the number seven as a number of completion, right? And number eight, according to the church fathers and what I just laid out for you, eight is the number of Christ. And six is the number of man. It even says right here. Because man was created on the sixth day. It's also one less than seven. So we have not quite attained to who God is. So you have six three times. Now, again, this is not our domain. We don't do this but early church wrote an awful lot about this and they talked about this number. So here's a few things to know about six, six, six. First of all, it is triple sixes. So you have the number of man three times. Also, if you square six, so you get six times six is 36. If you add up all the numbers from one through 36 together, you get the number 666. That was called a triangular number because if you laid it out, it would be in the form of a triangle. So, the church fathers looked at this and said, this is a really interesting kind of in and out kind of number. And you say, well, we don't do stuff like, yeah, well, people today believe in all sorts of strange things. This one's in the Bible, so we're going to take a look at it. It's an interesting number. And many people have run wild with this information. And, <laughs> you know, my, uh, my Bible teacher in ninth grade, my first class at a, um, this wasn't the first day, but my first class that I ever took at a Christian school you know, it was Old Testament class, and I was so excited. And we started talking at some point about the number of the beast. And if I remember correctly, he said, you got to be careful about this, because he took the numbers for big purple dinosaur and demonstrated to us that Barney was, in fact, the Antichrist. <laughs> and that is usually what happens when people want to take the number 666 and apply it to somebody. Usually, it's applied and was historically to Nero, the emperor in the 60s, the first emperor to persecute the church. Uh, But here's how they did that. Because some people say, it's it's Nero. Everybody knows it's Nero. The, The revelation's over. It's already happened. But here's how they get that. They take the name Nero. They translate it into Hebrew. They give a specific ending to the name of Nero, which is not always done. Then they take the numbers and add them together. And aha, 666. And that's always how it goes. You've got to do like two or three backflips before you get there. Never mind the fact that Nero had been dead for 30 years when this book was written. There was a legend going around that Nero would come back to life, but guess what, he didn't. And even some people have adjusted the number, which is why you might have a footnote in your Bible, 616, that some people adjusted 666 to apply better to Nero, which is like, don't mess with that, man. Don't mess with, oh, this is must, what he must have meant. Stop, please. This is why we do textual criticism and examine all the manuscripts. When that day arises, it will be obvious to everybody who has wisdom, and especially those in the church, who this is and what the number means. They're going to be marking people with the number of his name. It's going to be clear. Everybody always wants to pick their least favorite guy and identify him as the Antichrist as I often say, because it just cracked me up when I read it for the first time. John Adams had the distinguished honor of being the first United States president to be identified as the Antichrist. The second president. And ranging from John Adams to Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln and FDR and Reagan and Bush and Obama and Trump and Biden, they've all been called the Antichrist by somebody. Other options, well, what about Hitler? What about Mussolini? What about Hideki Tojo? What about Mohammed? What about Henry Kissinger? That was a very popular one back in the day. Not my day, but back in the day. <laughs> Point being, take it easy with this stuff. Ah, their name is 666. Okay, well, have they taken their stand in the temple of God and declared themselves to be God and compelling you to bow down and worship their image and take their mark or chop your head off? Then just take it easy. It'll be obvious when the day arises. And also, this is important to you, 666 is not an evil number. All right? You're not going to like, oh, page 66. You ever get a check one day? It's like, you know, you get paid because your hour is like, $666, do I cash this? <laughs> yeah, cash it, take the money and tithe on it and stick one to the devil. <laughs> the mark of the beast will be used to compel Worship. And until that is taking place, and don't get all cute. Well, you know, I mean, using a credit card is like worship. No, it's not. Bowing and worshiping the image of the beast. It'll be very obvious at that time. But economic transactions will be illegal without the mark of the beast. And we are living in a day where global control of the military, the political system, the religious system, and the economic system is no longer fantasy and strange prophecy, is it? We're living in a day where you look at this stuff and you go, oh, yeah, they're trying to do that now. Which would cause your alarm bells to go off a little bit, right? But early in the church, they're like, we have no clue what this means. How could anybody? It can't mean global because we don't even know how big the world is. How are you supposed to make everybody do this? And the Lord's like, "You just, you guys have no idea. And then when Christian theologians began to look at these things and say, Uh, guys, we're building this. We're not doing it yet, but we're building the things that could be used to do this. Kind of like when it says there will be stars falling from heaven to destroy the, you know, that'll poison the water and rip apart the sky. You know, people say, well, historically, the church never interpreted that as nuclear weapons. No, but then we invented a bomb that could blow up the world. And I don't even know if that's my opinion, but it certainly made it more plausible to certain groups of the church. So this is where we can start to veer towards conspiracy if we do not check ourselves, but on we must go because we are living at a time where globalism is a stated goal of an awful lot of people. Not even just like, you know, the suits eating caviar and lobster tails, you know, in some high-rise penthouse. But like people on college campuses and like in your neighborhood that are like, all, we, we shouldn't even have countries. There should be one world, man. Aren't we all just one, united together? You've got the United Nations, which drives an awful lot of us crazy. Like, well, you know, why do I care what Azerbaijan has to say about what we do in our country, Right? Well, it's good for us all to come together and prevent war. It's like, yeah, but my, you know, my theory, and some of this is going to be you know, speculation and opinion, but my thought is, okay, Founding Fathers taught us to look at things and say, how could it go terribly, terribly wrong, right? We, we see that there are these groups that gather together. There are these nations' leaders that gather together. Like, what were you all talking about? We're not going to tell you. Okay, well, are you planning something? Oh, don't be a conspiracy theorist. Okay, well, it's kind of hard not to when you keep doing this. We have a massive surveillance state in the making all over the world and even here as well. And we look at the things that we have permitted as a result of things like 9-11. I remember 9-11 and I don't judge or fault anybody for how we felt at that time. But you go to the airport now. You still got to take off your shoes and your belt and walk through, right? And we kind of look at this and go, are we really still doing this? You ever had that opinion when you fly? Are we really still doing this? We find things out. Oh, yeah, they're reading all your emails, and they're reading all your texts, and they have access to everything you've ever posted and deleted on Instagram and Facebook. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute. You, you, you know, and Then they have those ridiculous hearings in Congress, right? I like, you got to tell us what's going on. And they go, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and it's like... Oh, are you going to arrest that guy? No, I guess we've got to let him go. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> now, again, again, some of this is speculation, but I'm just saying there is a whole worldwide push to want to know everything that's going on about everybody all the time. You've got a whole digital world that people have voluntarily dumped all their life into that people are trying actively to control well, the government's not tracking me. I'm never going to. This this cracked me up when folks would like, and I'm going to step on toes here, but I'm just going to say it anyway. When people were like, you know, if you take, the, take, if you take the COVID shot, they can track you. I read about it on my iPhone. You realize they're tracking that too, right? You're carrying it with you. I'm not judging you. I've got an Apple watch on right now, OK? You don't think I worry about that sometimes when I'm studying for this one and like throw it across the room? <laughs> You know, I don't know anything about some of this stuff, but like you look at something like cryptocurrency, which is like, what if we take the money? We don't use money anymore. We just use like credits online. People go, that would be really convenient. Sure would. But what happens when somebody decides, uh, we're going to not allow you to spend money? Before, it's like, (laughs) I've got gold. What are you going to do? You're not going to take my gold coins? Like, well, no, you don't have it anymore because we took it from you. And there are groups. Here's where we get really really touchy with folks, but we're going to go there. You get groups like the World Economic Forum that, are st- that stood up and said things like, you know what, this COVID thing has really presented us with an interesting opportunity to reset the world and just kind of remake the way we do things. That sounds very innocuous, doesn't it? Until you find out these are the same people that are like, you know, we're probably gonna to have to reduce the number of people on the world eventually at some point to save the planet. And you know, people probably shouldn't be allowed to have cars like that. And people, does you know, not everybody should, too many people are eating meat, we've gotta reduce. People like that, when come out and say, let's remake the way we run the world. And they say things like, you're not gonna own anything, but it's fine, it's gonna be great for you. Just, you know, you rent it, you subscribe to it. Subscription model for food and energy there are people that want to reshape and control and coerce the world. And they have the means to do it. That's all I'm trying to say. You see these things out there. And for somebody like me, it causes that little red alarm to go from my head. You know, you're like you're in a submarine. It's like, all right, we're at DEFCON 2 now. We're moving it up. For those of you that are like, That's the, don't, please don't be one of those guys, Tyler. All I am saying is there are people who want to have this kind of control. And they have the means to do it now. We are living in a time where what John prophesied is not even possible. It's even cringy to talk about it because you hear about it so much. People were talking forever about the subdermal microchip. That's going to be the mark of the beast. And Christians were laughed to scorn for that. And now they're doing that in certain European countries. Is that the mark of the beast? No. But it's like, well, turns out the Christians weren't as stupid as they looked at first. I remember reading an article not long ago from some atheist, but he said, you owe your crazy religious grandpa an apology. I'm like, oh, I got to read that. And it was all about how in like, I, I don't remember what country, so I don't want to say, but it's, I believe one of the lower countries in, in Europe, they're starting to, to chip children now. And this is crazy. And the people that were warning us were right. And I was like, well, thanks for saying it. So what do we, what do, we do with this kind of thing, you know? What do we do with this? Like, all right, we believe that someday there's going to be a nation that is going to rise up and conquer the whole globe. They're going to control everybody's economics. They're going to control everything about you. They're going to execute you if you don't worship. And we see now that the apparatus is in place for somebody to use it. What do you do with stuff like that? Here's what I will first say. That just because these things are being put in place does not mean that people using it are Babylon or the Antichrist. All right? That's important to know. Here's the next thing I'll say. Christians in America have always been in a unique place with a distrust of centralized political and religious authority. In fact, we're one of the few places in the world where we believe that. Now, I realize separation of church and state has just been like used to bludgeon the church for decades. But I mean, that's what the pilgrims were when they came over here. We've been living in, in countries where you have to be Catholic or they're going to chop off your head. Not only that, if you're not the right kind of Anglican, we're going to chop off your head. So you know what? We're going to leave and go to America because we don't like the idea of having these two things united together. Then when, even when the Constitution came about, here's a Virginia story that you might not know, but we're very proud of this guy. There's a man named John Leland who was a Baptist pastor in Orange, Virginia. And when James James Madison came back with the Constitution so excited, John Leland ran against him in his own district and was on his way to winning. Why? Because all the Christians looked at that and said, there is no protection for religious freedom in it. We're not signing your Constitution. And you can go visit the tree. There's a very famous tree in Virginia where James Madison met with John Leland, where John Leland said, I'll get all of the mostly Baptists, all these Christians to go along with it if you guarantee me that the first thing you will do is put religious protections in the Constitution. I'm not saying this to be patriotic. What I'm saying is we have a heritage as Christians to have a distrust even of our own system when it tries to blend the control and coercion of politics, state authority, and religion. Maybe going back to Constantine, when that, even that, as glorious as that moment was, went bad so fast. So I don't care whether the excuse is climate change. Have you ever seen the 15-minute city idea they're doing in London? That you're, you're, you will require a special pass to travel more than 15 minutes outside of your zone that you're given. And you have a certain number of hours that you can do per year. That's, you know, they're, they're putting that out there. And I, I, to the best of my knowledge, it's being protested and opposed. And I say, Good. what they say, well, we just got to stop carbon emissions. It's like, yeah, sure you are. Or COVID, right? I realize there's all kinds of strong opinions on COVID. Here's what I'll say. At the very least, can we admit that there were bad people that wanted to use that crisis to install more control for themselves? Talk to what happened in Peru, you guys. They were driving around the streets with machine guns and bullhorns that if you got out of your house, you were going to get shot. Not arrested, not canceled, Shot. But it's, it's for our own good. We don't want people to die. Or equality. That was what communism did. That's what, that is what the Soviets wanted to do. We want to establish a utopia. These Christians are getting in the way. So we're going to clamp down and control everything. Find them. Send them to Gulag so that we can finally have the world we've always wanted. Or ISIS. They actually did mark Christians. Do you remember that? We are opposed to things like that. Why? Because it's what the Antichrist is going to do. You're saying I've got to be a small government conservative to be a Christian? No, I'm not. But I'm saying you've got to have enough open eyes to recognize that this is the sort of thing the devil wants to do, is have all the control over you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Freedom. Satan hates that. It's not because we believe That this political party or this group is Babylon. Because Paul says that can't happen unless the man of lawlessness arises. And he has not. Also, the rapture hasn't happened yet. But how do we recognize, why do we oppose these people? Because they speak with the voice of a dragon. There are always these, it seems that every group that wants to do this, they're also always pushing for godlessness. And I mean that literally, godlessness. These religious people are getting in the way. It's backwards. We've got to reestablish something where we just worship ourselves so that we can face this plainly. Seems like they're always pushing strange immorality too. And again, veering kind of into this territory that I don't like to go. But I'll just say, when I was doing my own research, and when I've looked into things like this before, it just takes like five minutes before you start discovering weird, sexual, perverse things about these people. That we want to push this stuff. Just keep pushing the envelope. Because we want to undermine people's faith in the gospel. They wouldn't do that. Can I give you a very shameful example from our own history? There came a point in, I believe, the 1840s where states were making it illegal to preach the gospel or give a Bible to a slave. Because when they got hold of the gospel, they wanted freedom. And it was a measure of control. Why did they not want them to read? Because they were reading the Bible. And they were finding out, if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. If we're all brothers and sisters, what are we doing? So, well, they would, people wouldn't use, use godlessness as a measure of control. They have. The Soviets did it. The Chinese are doing it. Every, pick your place, man. And even the more you look into this stuff, you start to see the occult tied into it, too. It seems like whenever there's a strange sex thing, you keep looking and there's, demon, there's demonism behind it. And maybe I'm just more gullible than most. But when you start seeing these people, the same people that are saying, let's just all be one world and one global thing and one united thing. And then they put up a statue like the one they did in New York City. Have you all seen the statue they put up to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg? They said, you know, she died. She was a great New Yorker. Fine. Okay. Well, what they did is they they put up this golden statue that deliberately took visual inspiration from uh, Mesopotamian idolatry. And it's this strange goddess looking thing with these horns that go out of her head and, the, and the, this golden shape. And it's, you look at that and you go, what is this? And, well, this is to honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg and abortion. And you look at that and like, I'm sitting there like, how is not some church gone and torn that thing down, man? Well, it's not an idol. I know it's not. But when you just look at that and you go, what is, I, do, you don't tell me you don't know what that is. Don't tell me you don't know what that is supposed to look like. And if you were trying to get me upset, well, congratulations, you did. (laughs) This whole world that you look at is filled up with the same kind of things that are going to happen someday. Sexual perversion, a thirst for control, and a desire to exalt the dragon and false gods and tear down the name of Jesus Christ. So we ask ourselves questions like this. Are these things going to be what gives rise to this thing? I don't know. But if they are this kind of thing, then it's the kind of thing the church ought to be opposed to. Just on principle. It's like we're not going along with that. Now, I am not one of those people who believes that you are going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. All sorts of strange people like that. and I'm just going to stand here. The coronavirus vaccine was not the mark of the beast. And that is a shameful, terrible thing to tell somebody. I don't care what your opinions were on how you should take it or how it was made or whatever. When you say mark of the beast, you're in a realm of territory that involves damnation to hell. And I I will not stand for that. But let me ask you this question. You're not going to take it accidentally. And I don't believe we're living in the time or we will live in the time when this takes place. But if they're going to require a mark that says, I worship the beast in order to engage in normal life, what sort of religious tests are Christians being put through? What sort of things are you required to say in order to engage in society? What sort of things are you required to do and sign and say, I believe and go along with? I just read a story not long ago, it might have been like this week even, where there was a A Christian in England who is suing, the, uh, the, I believe, the Board of Social Workers because they refused to give him a license or they took away his license because he said, I don't support homosexuality. And they said, unless you do that, you can't work here. That's the kind of thing we look for. Until you affirm this sin, you cannot buy or sell, so to speak. Now, we're living in days where Christians can build their own things, praise the Lord. And there's a lot of us. And we ought to continue to leverage what power we do have. But you look for things like this. Knowing what Paul said in 2 Timothy three twelve 12-13, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. One day, this deception will sweep the globe at the hand of the false prophets. And whether the similar, th- the kind of things that we're describing today have something to do with that or not, we ought to know that it's going to happen. Again, I'm not saying that any one of those things in particular is the work of the Antichrist. But I'm saying the apparatus is in place for somebody wicked to do something like this. You know, I'm probably going to go over my time today, but what I'm about to say next is very important. We hear prophecies like the one I just read. We see attempts like the ones I just described at control in our own time. And I fully acknowledge that some of that is opinion and speculation, and I'm not as informed as others are. But you see that and you go, well, what do we do? What what am I supposed to do? Tell me what to do about this now. Well, there are plenty of people that will tell you exactly what you're supposed to do in response to this. And I will say, activism and voting and persuasion are all important and have their place. But they are not the solution I recommend, nor the one your Bible gives you. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 ought to be like post-it noted to your, your computer when you're online. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The solution to false prophecy is true prophecy. The Antichrist will be defeated by Jesus Christ. The church will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony because we did not love our lives even unto death. That is how we overcome. Now hear me when I say this. The world is waking up to evil of all sorts. I've been looking forward to this and I've been knowing it's coming because so much of this Stuff, especially the strange sexuality, is so weird. You can only push it for so long. And the Lord is not mocked. And you can finally start to feel that momentum change. And it's picking up speed. And praise God for that. But we must not forget our place as prophets. The church is sent out to be different, apart, so that they can speak the word of God, not just the word of the right man. Folks say things like this all the time. Where was the church when this started? Where was the church when Roe v. Wade? Where was the church when this? They were there. We were there proclaiming this stuff, warning against this stuff, saying things like if you preach this evolution stuff in the room, kids are going to despair and be depressed and you're gonna eliminate God. And they were mocked at and shamed and then there we went. They stood up and said if you remove the restrictions on divorce, if you permit free love and free sex, you're gonna get a generation of kids that don't know what true love is. There you go. If you allow homosexuality, it will lead to the questioning of male and female and even go to places like pedophilia. They were insulted and lambasted for that. They've been speaking all this time. But no one's been listening. They scoffed at us. And now all of a sudden, because it's happening to you. Oh, we, we must take this very seriously. Christians stood up and said, what, the universities are turning into propaganda factories because we send our kids and they try to draw Jesus Christ out of them. And they said, oh, look at the poor Christians being salty about the facts. And we said, we're being silenced and not being allowed to to work and being forced to to adhere to things that we don't want. And they say, you're just out of step with the times. And then finally it went a little too far and got a few more people. And they say, you know, this stuff is really a problem. And I am sorry, I'm not going to be the one to stand alongside you and say, glad you finally came around, pal, because I'm not on your team here. We can drive Nero into the sea and restore the stars and stripes all over the place and never see another pride flag. But unless there is widespread repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, you will exchange one devil for another. Some of y'all need to hear this. Am I happy that there's pushback on stuff? Yes, but it's not enough. These are the same people that we're standing in line with in many cases that mocked us and hated us and have no business talking about Jesus Christ. We are not here to restore Western culture. We're here to restore the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is for all nations, not just this one. How do we do that? Can I just bring this right back to the most basic things that you know? How do we fight back against this stuff? You've got to live like a Christian. You've got to take up your cross and follow Jesus. You've got to leave your nets, leave your water pots, sell all that you have and go after him. That's the solution. And then if you want to go and talk about politics or you want to talk about social media campaigns, do whatever you're going to do. But we are servants of the living God. It's commitment to the church. It's devotion to the word. It's evangelism of the lost. It's love for those who are broken. It's mortification of sin in your own life. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. The power of prayer. Worship in spirit and in truth. Those are the keys to our victory. Because Ephesians 6.12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood or globalists or communists or Muslims or Democrats. But we wrestle against God principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need revival, not revolution. Revival. We were talking about it. What happened? But he was like, oh, we're so desperate. We need revival. Oh, wait, never mind. Things are starting to go our way again. Kind of like when the church is filled up after 9-11 for about two weeks. Oh, we need God now. Actually, you know what? I'm not scared anymore. I'll move along. How do you overcome? By an active, vibrant, militant faith. Through devotion and discipline. Through opening up Matthew 5 when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And saying, That's going to be me. Turn the other cheek. Give to those who ask of you. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those things are how we win. You've got to stay focused. Prophecy should not cause you to be obsessed with the Antichrist. It should cause you to be obsessed with Jesus Christ. Our baptism service this afternoon will be a greater act of resistance against evil than any boycott or protest we could summon in this church. Because we're taking a stand in the spirit. Now, I know that's hard because it's not flesh. You say, but we've got to do something. You're right, let's pray. I said do something. Where's your faith? The Lord turns over wicked regimes in a day in your Old Testament. Jezebel's queen, what do we do? Raise up Jehu. One day she's gone. I mean, God can't do that now. God can't revive his church. God can't turn everything around. God can't remove it. You know, remember we read on Wednesday night, the the guy that told Elisha, even if God could open up windows in heaven, are you saying there could be bread here? Do you remember that guy? How many people say, you know what? I don't know if we're ever going back to the day. I don't know if we're ever getting rid of, of the pride movement. I don't know if we're ever going away from this. Where is your faith? My Jesus walks on water. Why Jesus spun the universe into existence. Is there anything too hard for him? Then why are we wasting our time and our attention and our energy elsewhere? We're doing it in the service of him. Yes, but are you, the devil will say, fine, do that. Just don't touch this. Turn on the TV, be aware, but don't get on your knees. Tell people who they need to vote for, but don't tell them who they need to believe for salvation. We resist the false trinity by trusting in the holy trinity. We resist every antichrist by devotion and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return in glory to slay the lawless one by the breath of his mouth, and he will reign forever and ever and ever.